On the previous episode, I read feedback from Frugal Freddy, and a lot of you have been asking, how can I support the podcast? And by a lot of you, I mean my mom and dad. They reached out to ask how they could support the podcast. Well, in addition to being a Patreon member, mom and dad, I've also set up an OnlyFans account, so you can follow me over there. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-69. And I'm showing everyone my big business secrets over there, so you don't want to miss out. And thanks, Mom and Dad. Without your support, people like Frugal Freddy couldn't access this awesome free interview they're about to listen to right now. I know Freddy thanks you too. So now on to this awesome interview with Terry Kusid. Oh my God. Bedlam breaks out in the room. One of the DTV execs comes over and says, Terry, you might have to leave. And it's like, for what? What did I do? Well, I literally got escorted out. So in 1979, we closed our year at almost 40 million in revenue with $10 million net profits. Now, when you think about 10 million net profit in 1979, that's equivalent today of 30 mil. And this is two years into it. So at the time, I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm the golden boy. The saying I used to have on the wall was tough times don't last, tough people do. It was like, Grandpa, but what if you're doing something you hate? Doesn't matter. Work like a dog. This is where I learned one of my first most important lessons in business. And I would tell everybody to remember this for their whole life. So I stop and Stanky just rips me a new asshole. I had a guy tell me a long time ago, people do what you inspect, not what you expect. My dad was lecturing me at the time. You're just getting lucky. And, <laughs> and not very supportive. <laughs> no, not him. You cannot wait your way to success. Waiting around don't get you nowhere. Hi, my name is Terry Cousid, and I live in Bel Air in the Los Angeles area. I'm 68 years old, and I am what you would call a serial entrepreneur. I've spent the past 45 years building numerous companies, which we founded, with my last one being Bel Air Internet which after 18 years of starting it, operating it, building it, we recently sold it. And it was a wild ride to say the least. Yeah, why did you sell it? Number of factors came into play. We had been growing nicely in Los Angeles and a, I would call us a fairly dominant player. We were the largest, what you call WISP in Los Angeles, which is wireless ISP and having good success. So we decided before COVID to go out and raise money previously in all the different companies and a Bell Internet. We'd always bootstrapped it or used our own capital or begged, borrowed, and steeled. So we never went out and actually raised public money or uh, private equity, that kind of thing. So we decided that now was the time. The performance of the company was great. So late last year, we thought it would be a good idea to begin a roll-up, begin the process of looking at other entities in the western half of the United States. There were ISPs that we could consolidate their business within ours and grow it not only organically, but also you know through purchases. So we had this great plan. We'd worked on this plan for actually about a year before we decided to launch it. And a crazy set of circumstances, we had been talking to investment bankers, a group of them, all with great knowledge in our industry for years. 
They had all come to us and said, I think now is not a bad time to go raise some money. So on Black Monday, when the stock market crashed, had the worst crash, and COVID became the talk of everybody, we actually had sent out our solicitation letter to bankers to see who would like to represent us under what terms. So we started the process on the worst day of financial history virtually, which was kind of disappointing and depressing, and we were very concerned we'd have any luck. What actually started to happen was that COVID impacted the equity markets in a considerable fashion in that our model was always recurring revenue, nice growth, solid balance sheet. And once COVID hit, capital started looking around saying, what can we invest in? And so did private equity. And infrastructure and recurring revenue all of a sudden became very hot. So while we hired the bankers to look for a minority partner, what transpired is they found people that wanted to buy most or all of Bel Air Internet. And due to a variety of factors, we thought we should take a look at it. Factors being A, my age, 68 years old, and the fact that COVID was really attacking people that were older. And for years, we discussed what would be an exit price or exit point for us as a family. And that point, I always moved it out there because I'm an entrepreneur and I was very optimistic about our future. And the family was always chiding me for the fact that I kept moving the goalposts. So this time around, we'd already established a price that if we hit it, we would go. And we did. And what was the price? It was way beyond what the family thought we'd get a few years ago. It was in the tens of millions. What's fairly unique about this is that everybody in the family, my wife, and all three of my children have been involved in the company in some way or all the time throughout the process. So for example, my wife and I founded the company together 18 years ago. My youngest daughter, Amanda, joined us about nine years ago working on our website. She'd been out of college a couple of years and working on our user interface. And then she started working on our enterprise software. And so she's been working day to day at Beller Internet for about nine years. My wife, since the beginning, my son was involved in the company at the beginning and actually worked on the spreadsheets and did a lot of the modeling and was very instrumental in our efforts to sell the business. He actually worked primarily with the bankers and he also worked with the private equity company, MC Partners, that eventually acquired the company. And I think his experience of selling his own company a few years ago that he had founded was very helpful in getting through this minefield because anytime you sell a company, and I don't care what the circumstances are, it is catharsis type of event to say the least. It, it's nice to get the end of it, but boy, going through it, it's very challenging. Well, how big was the company when you sold it? Like how many employees and like customers did you have? Our revenue pre-COVID was about $17 million of recurring revenue. We had approximately 80 employees. And I'm looking at your reviews, dude. I've never seen so many positive reviews for an internet company. It says 2,556 reviews in your 4.9 rating on Google. When we founded the company, what we decided to do was do the exact opposite of what all the telcos do. And telcos are telecom, telecommunications, right? Yeah. So just think Comcast, right? If I Google Comcast and look up the reviews, I bet it's probably like 0.5. Everyone knows how terrible Comcast is. <laughs> it's Comcast, it's Spectrum, it's AT&T, it's Frontier, it's Verizon. All of them are in the business of mass manufacturing. And they don't really care about the customer. 
They pay lip service to the customer. They say they care, but all their processes and how they run their business is the exact opposite of what they say they're trying to do. I mean, try to call them and get them to do something for you. It's an act of God to find anybody. So when we set up Bel Air Internet, we did some unusual things. We have live people answer the phones. We have set time appointments. So you don't have to sit there from nine o'clock to one o'clock every day wondering if the guy's actually going to show up. We actually send you what your pricing is going to be in an email confirmed before you agree to get service. This is something that neither Spectrum nor I don't believe Comcast, none of them will actually send you something with your pricing. And I guess just to make sure everyone understands what Bel Air Internet, just tell us what it is comparatively to, like I said, a local internet provider. Usually, I think everyone only has a certain internet provider, but I guess you're in Los Angeles and you're your own provider there in Los Angeles. Just tell us how that works. We're our own ISP. And I think what'd be very interesting for your listeners to hear is how we got to this point. And that is back in 2000, 2001, I live in Bel Air, and for some reason, I could not get internet to my house. Both the telephone company, which was Verizon at the time, and Spectrum, it was called something else at that time. No matter what I did, they could not get service to my house. So every three months, they told me, three months from now, you're going to get service. And then that would go on. This went on for two years. What year was it when you were trying to call and get them to do it? From 2000 to 2002. So we're complaining, we're bitching, moaning, and groaning, and to no avail. I mean, nobody cared. Surprise, surprise. So a very strange thing happened. We had been on a trip, my wife and myself, as we're driving home. For some reason, the situation of we don't have any internet at the house, and how can I work? Because I'd sold my previous company in 1998, and I wanted to do some different things, but I couldn't get internet at the house. Was I going to have to rent an office? What was I going to do? And as we're driving, the limo driver turns around and he says, oh, actually, I gave a guy a ride the other day who lives in the neighborhood below you, a community called Bel Air Crest, big community. And they had the same problem. And he was a software engineer, and he set up a little wireless internet service for his neighborhood. And I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but my wife was listening. When he said the word wireless, I thought of cell and how terrible cell service is, especially back then. And I didn't pay much attention to it. And he went on to say that, yeah, they brought up the service and they put a couple of little dishes up on the community center roof. It looked like tennis rackets. And lo and behold, they started distributing internet through the neighborhood and they were connected to what's called a T1 which is a 1.2 meg circuit. Now, even though I'm a serial entrepreneur, at that time I had no background in telephone, internet, or television, nothing. No background, all my companies had been in different tech areas, so I didn't know wireless from Schmireless or what a T1 was other than it's a certain amount of bandwidth. And even though it sounded a little bit interesting, I kind of just blew it off. But as we pulled up to the house, the driver turned around to me and said, oh, by the way, I have this guy's card that started this service. Why don't you call him? And I, again, was like, well, maybe I'll think about it. My wife grabbed the card. So the next day I called this guy and yes, he set up a little neighborhood service and he had about 25 people on the service and it had line of sight. If you could see the community center anywhere in the community from your home, you put a little dish on your roof. And you got service. And I said, this sounds way too good to be true. 
And we chatted for a couple of minutes. He goes, where's your house? And I told him, and I had a perfect view of the clubhouse. He says, let me send somebody over and I'll get you set up. So that afternoon, this young kid, about 19, showed up, jumped up on the roof, put a little dish, drilled a little hole in my wall, put a Cat5 through, connected to my computer. Son of a gun. I had internet. And the minute that happened, my entrepreneurial wheels just went crazy. I started reading everything and looking into everything you need to know about what an ISP does, how you buy bandwidth, and decided to work with him to set up a little neighborhood service. And what's his name? Let me think about that for a second, about whether he'd like his name mentioned or not. Well, just his first name? Let me think about that for a second. I got to kind of check on the wife. So we could get service from his house, but it couldn't take care of our neighborhood. He and I decided, let's do it in our own neighborhood. I walked around the neighborhood, found a home that was up on a bluff that had a big pine tree. And I knocked on the guy's door and I said, you have internet? He goes, "Ah, I can't get internet. And I said, hey, what if I brought you some internet, but I need to use your pine tree for distribution? And he said, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. We spent about a half hour talking. Lo and behold, he agreed. We brought a T1 line to his house. And the same guy that put the dish up on my roof climbed the pine tree, literally. And as he held on, he put in dishes up on the pine tree to distribute to the neighborhood. And that was how Beller Internet was launched. Yeah. And so just to clarify, you're saying the driver gave you the card of this anonymous guy that you don't want to tell me his name, but regardless <laughs> that he gave you his card, right? And then that you called him that day or like you're skeptical. I just want to make sure everyone understood that part. My wife took the card and said, call him. So the next day I called and we started having a long conversation and he was a software development engineer. So he was not a hardware guy, but he was equally pissed off that he couldn't get internet at his house. And he wanted to help his own little neighborhood, which had about 60, 70 homes. So that's how we began it. And so when I did my neighborhood, we put the service up in a pine tree and I walked around door to door in Bel Air asking people, can you get internet? And when they said no and they wanted it, I told them, I'll put up a dish on your roof and you can see the pine tree. So we signed up about 50 people in our neighborhood. How long did that take? Probably about a month. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty quick. That's what I was like wondering, because I mentioned, let's say you got service the next day. You also want to make sure it's reliable, right? So did you wait like a week and then went to all these other people and you already had a business in mind with this other guy? Or were you just trying to help everybody because they couldn't get internet as well? Well, in between the time I got it at the house and we actually started to launch something in the neighborhood was about a six week or eight week period. During that period of time, I went to the University of Learning About ISPs and also WISPs. And again, ISP is Internet Service Provider, just to make sure everyone's on the same page again. And what's WISPs? Wireless Internet Service Provider. So just to you know, give you a little bit of backdrop, I'm not an engineer. So even though I built six tech companies, I graduated with a degree in political science. And I have no formal training in anything to do with tech. So I always have to kind of struggle through the technical side of things to figure out what the heck is going on. So I spent that time reading, learning, talking to people, seeing actually, where the heck do you actually buy internet from? Oh, yeah, there's a building downtown. Oh, well, how does that work? And what do you need? You need to put a router in and a switch. Well, how do you do that? So when we actually decided to start this about that six weeks or two months later, literally at that point in time, it was my wife, myself, and the guy that would climb on the roof. 
decided to start the company with the help from the original founder. And then very shortly after that, he dropped out. He was very busy with other things and he didn't really embrace the idea. And it was kind of just a little neighborhood thing to him. So he didn't really care. And he was an executive VP in software development company and pretty important and busy job. So that is how we ended up just kind of running it from there. So three people that knew nothing about being an ISP actually drove the company from there. And we learned as we went. So from, you asked me the question earlier, from that original 30, 40, 50 people in the neighborhood that took us a month or so to sign up, we grew to where we had about 75,000 people in our network when we sold on a daily basis. And it might've been beyond that. It's very hard to tell. So that's what happened over the 18 years. I was going to say, at that time, did you envision that you'd sell the company for tens of millions? No. In fact, there was a big debate between my wife and myself about She's always worked with me in the companies I've run, and we've always built big companies. So there was a debate. She did not want me to build another big company. She said, look, if you promise not to make it big, just keep it to a couple of neighborhoods and do this as a kind of a hobby, small business, I'll work with you. But don't do what you always do and make this thing this monster. And I'm not sure if I want to work that hard. I was 50 at that time. So just promise me we'll never get more than 10 employees. And so we had a long negotiation that I promised we'd never get big. Obviously, I broke that promise along the way, much to her chagrin at times. And she obviously worked side by side with me through the 18 years. But boy, it was challenging. Were you rich before this? I was running all the different companies from before, as well as investments in real estate. I could have easily retired or just been a quote, a consultant. But I was still very, even after running all the companies and doing all the stuff I did, I was still very antsy about looking for something, quote, to do. I think a lot of this is just being an entrepreneur. It's almost in your blood. You don't feel complete if you're not doing something, you're not developing something, you're not building something. It's like a part of you is missing. So for me to just, quote, go into an early retirement made me very antsy, and it was not something that I really wanted to embrace. I kind of wanted to find something that I wanted to do and that I would enjoy and that we could build on. And when we first started, we were doing neighborhoods and doing homes. We were delivering service in areas that were underserved or no serve. We quickly realized that would change at some point in time. I live on the Mulholland Corridor in Los Angeles. So we went to other communities along the Mulholland Corridor. They had the same problem. They were up at the top of the hill, couldn't get internet. So we launched our services and we were having great success. We got to something like five, 600 customers inside of six months. We were doing something like $40,000 a month in revenue. We were profitable. We were working out of the house, my wife, myself, and Martin at the time. Gentleman would go on the roofs, eventually became, by default, he became our CTO. He was a roof climber. He could figure out how to configure a switch. So that was his initial claim to fame. This kind of comes back to one of the truths that I'll be talking about throughout this discussion. And that is, I started looking into our business in comparison to competitors and what might happen. And I came to the conclusion that sooner or later, the cable guys and the phone guys would come into our neighborhoods. And when they did, they had a TV product to go with their internet and that our ability to compete for quality of service, as well as having a TV product, which we didn't have, 
that we would be easily outflanked. And the cost of putting up quality internet, when we first started doing internet, we were doing what's called point to multipoint. We brought a T1 line into one distribution point, and then we put dishes on multiple homes, and they all shared the access to the T1. They didn't have their own each, their own T1. They had to share. And when you share, it makes your internet slower, and you don't have as much use. So we could only sell a certain amount of homes before we would have degradation or issues. And there wasn't that much. A home was only getting maybe like 256K, which was screaming hot at that point in time. But I knew that down the road, service would pick up, speeds would pick up, and point to multipoint would not work in communities to be able to provide high quality service and expand speeds. So even though we were being successful at the time, we were making money, I saw us coming to a dead end. So I quickly pivoted and decided that we should be doing, instead of homes, we should be doing apartment buildings. Because the cost of the delivery of a lot of bandwidth to an apartment building could be distributed to customers throughout the building. And I wouldn't have the high cost of putting in high quality internet into each home. So let's say the cost of doing a building was seven, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 in equipment. If I tried to do that for homes, we never would have recouped our money, nor would we have had enough bandwidth to take care of them. But doing an apartment building, we could. So out I went on the road, literally looking around for new buildings going up in downtown LA, because there was a lot of building down there, and doing pitches, to which I didn't get much reception. Also, we started looking around for rooftop distribution points to where we could bring internet and maybe distribute to other buildings. That also was very challenging, difficult, and I failed most times because most commercial buildings did not want to put any kind of equipment on their roof or allow us to do it because they'd been burned by other companies that came before us in the wireless industry, in the wireless business that I didn't even know about that had made a lot of promises and had raised public money and they failed. So I went to these companies, these landowners and these landlords and said, hey, can I put some dishes on your roof for distribution? And I would get kicked out of the building and said, don't come back. <laughs> so that was a challenge. And then finding an apartment builder who would let me bring my service to the building. So I found a guy downtown, an Israeli guy who was very well known in the building uh, business, very well respected. And so I pitched him. He was very difficult, didn't believe it would really work. There was a day that I went down to make another pitch to him, and it was 90-degree day in Los Angeles, very hot. I'm in a blue suit, and I go down to the construction site, and we had an appointment, but I had to sit out and wait for an hour in the sun, and they were doing saw cutting that day in the concrete in the building. So by the time the guy would see me, my blue suit was gray. I was covered in cement dust, and I was so aggravated and hot and sweaty. And I had to go in there and make my final pitch. To make a long story short, after a lot of going back and forth, he agreed to let me provide services into the property. And we had a phenomenal success in that building. And the name of the property was called the Toy Factory. Even to this day, we're still providing our services there. And then we also launched a direct TV service, satellite TV distribution system at the property too. So we had a great success and completely outflanked the telcos. Energetic Austin here, and we all want to know we have enough to get where we want to go. 
For instance, you either have enough energy to run a marathon or you're on the side of the road wheezing. How about your startup? Does it have enough cloud computing power to win and handle the really big customers? You might think stable, enterprise-ready cloud infrastructure like Oracle's is out of reach for your new company, but Oracle for Startups was made just for you. Oracle wants to help you land those big customers, so they're offering preferred pricing on enterprise cloud for startups, free cloud credits, and 70% off their cloud services. And with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you can build it any way you want. Oracle for Startups doesn't want you wheezing on the side of the road. They want you to have enough power to scale and land your dream customer. Visit oracle.com forward slash go to forward slash millionaire or check the link in the episode description below. Again, that's oracle.com forward slash go to forward slash millionaire. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. Are you looking for a historical safe investment vehicle that is recession and COVID resilient? Or are you worried about the erratic stock market, the long-term effects of inflation, or the new increases in taxes? As a smart and savvy business entrepreneur, you know there has to be a good option out there for you to invest your hard-earned money. Well, one of our Patreon members, Mr. Jonathan Tuttle out of Chicago, has all the answers to your problems. He runs a real estate fund called Midwest Park Capital, and they invest in mobile home parks. Mobile home parks, you say? Well, yes. Did you know that mobile home parks have been one of the safest real estate investments over the past 50 years? Plus, you get all the best tax benefits of all real estate property types by investing in mobile home parks. Plus, they help hedge against inflation. And guess what? You can have all this done by a seasoned investor without you doing any of the work. How? Well, just contact Jonathan Tuttle at Midwest Park Capital. Again, that's MidwestParkCapital.com to learn how you can invest in mobile home parks today. One more time, go visit MidwestParkCapital.com. Was that your first big win? I guess finally getting in these multifamily places like you were saying? Yes, it was our first win. And when I decided to do this, both my wife and Martin were like, wait a minute, we're having all this success in mall. What the heck are you talking about doing in an apartment building? What do we know? And I said, we have to pivot. We're going to get outflanked. We're going to get slaughtered. A year, two years, we're going to be out of business. So they were very unhappy about it and didn't necessarily believe that it was a smart idea. But it was very clear to me that the success we were having was short term. And was that a year or two into the business of Bel Air Internet? Like how long did it take you from going to those single family homes to try to pitch this multifamily and see in the future? Nine months, eight months. Yeah. So pretty quick. I guess it's good that you saw that. But yeah, I understand that. And I appreciate you giving us a rundown of the early starting there. But I know you said you had six different tech companies. Did we want to save this story kind of for the end? I don't know if there's a good way to summarize kind of what's gone on in Bel Air, but it sounds like everything has worked out. And I appreciate you telling us those first nine months of just getting started, right? But would you want to pivot and talk about even your first internet company and rewind it there? Is there a good place that we can like leave off Bel Air Internet and come back to it at a later point chronologically? Yeah, sure. In fact, I think how I got into tech will be a really interesting tale for the listeners because everybody has their own path and it's a meandering road to success. So I'm back. It's 1974. Yes, the Stone Age. Before PCs, before microprocessors. Yeah, that works perfectly. Yeah. So we'll stop here with the Bel Air Internet. As far as, again, thank you for summarizing. You sold it for tens of millions, as we know, got up to 80 employees. You walked us through the first couple months and how things got started. And so from 2021, we'll rewind to 1974. Yeah. You went to University of Southern California, and then I'll let you pick it up from there. 
Yeah, and I got out of college. And to show you how crazy it was, I wanted to be a commodity trader or work in the finance sector. So I actually got hired by Bank of America to work in the commodity trading desk out of college, even though I was a poli-sci graduate. I was supposed to go to law school, but there was no way I was going to do that. So B of A hired me, and then I literally got fired a month before I was supposed to start work because B of A lost a lawsuit where they were not hiring enough women internally as managers. So they had to start deploying more women in different sectors of the bank and in different management. So I didn't keep the letter, but it would basically said, hey, you were hired, but sorry, reapply next year. We don't have a job opening anymore for you. So here I am shortly to be engaged, trying to figure out what I'm going to do in my future. And I went to a little place called the Job Factory in West LA. They posted jobs with three by five cards on bulletin boards. And owners or businesses posted the cards and paid for that. And then you go and look at it and see, is there something I could do? So uh, I went in there with my soon-to-be wife, and there was a sales job opening for selling electronic parts. Now, I always very comfortable with the idea of selling and did a bunch of that during college, but I knew nothing about electronics nor semiconductors. And in fact, I didn't even know what a semiconductor was. So I went and figured, what the heck, got nothing to lose, and I went and applied for the job. Now, the backdrop of this is the 1974-1975 timeframe was the worst recession depression since the 20s and even rivaled or was worse than the 2008 recession and the current one we're in. So I get out of college at a terrible time. There's no jobs. And I'm looking at pictures of 1974 Los Angeles. I only get black and white pictures, too. It, it's, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bleak. It looks like it from pictures, because I like to put myself in the mindset of like you going down there and what it must have looked like and whatnot. And yeah, there's not very beautiful pictures of what's going on. Well, and here I am out of USC, poli-sci. When I grew up, my family was in a ladies' clothing business. And at a young age, I was taught accounting and doing the books and doing inventory control by my loving grandmother and my very difficult father. So I knew about business and, you know, if you bought something, you had to sell it for more than you bought it for to make a profit and to pay the bills. Anyway, I go to interview at this place and it's a small little office, a one-man office. And I go into interview and they tell me that this office is an expansion of a company that's based in Chicago and they have eight offices across the country. And even though it's a recession depression, the company decided to expand to LA. But he also went on to tell me that the company historically had never hired anybody in sales that wasn't an actual engineer in semiconductors or electronics. So he didn't think that they would hire me. But after the interview, he really liked me. So he said, why don't you go sit outside in the outer office and I'm going to call my boss in Chicago. And for some reason, he put the boss on speakerphone. So I heard the whole conversation of which his boss literally ripped him a new one for what are you doing interviewing this kid? He's got no tech background. He's got no engineering. There's no way we're hiring this guy. What the hell are you doing? And Don argued on my behalf. His name is Don Manassian. Just kept arguing and arguing. And finally, the guy in Chicago said, all right, look, give him a month. And if he doesn't make it, fire him. And I'm in the outside room going, a month? I don't even know what the hell I'm going to be doing. How can I possibly be successful in a month? So 
Don hangs up the phone, comes out, says, good news, we're going to hire you. Doesn't say anything about the month. And I said, hire to do what? Sell electronic parts. And I said, what are these things? I don't know anything about them. So he gave me about a half hour tutorial, gave me a computer tab run, which most of your listeners won't even know what that is, which is basically thousands of pages of parts, what they cost and who the manufacturer was. So I learned about diodes and transistors and integrated circuits and low power Schottky and all sorts of esoteric stuff. And within a couple of days, he said, look, here's how we work. I'm going to go in the field all day trying to find leads and talk to buyers. And you're going to do 200, 300 calls a day. And you got to go find us business. And I'm like, huh? Where do I find these leads? What the heck are you talking about? So he sat down, gave me a script and said, open up the yellow pages. And on your time on the weekends, drive around the manufacturing and the and parts of Los Angeles and take company names down and then call them. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So he leaves. I'm in a little room by myself making hundreds of cold calls to companies that a lot of them are going broke, going out of business, the world is ending, or that I'm talking to engineers to try to sell them, and I'm not an engineer. So if they start asking me questions, I'm completely lost. This is where I learned one of my first most important lessons in business. And I would tell everybody to remember this for their whole life. The hold button is your friend. And I must have hit that hold button a hundred times during those first couple of weeks when I did actually get to talk to somebody because I didn't know what the answer was. And I didn't want to sound like a complete lunatic. So I had to kind of think there for a second of what the heck could I say? Needless to say, the first two weeks go by. I don't sell a dime of product. My boss is coming in every day saying, what's going on? Do you have any leads? No leads, no sales, nobody talking to me. And a lot of people actually laughing at me. Yeah. And what exactly were you selling again? Semiconductors, which are diodes, transistors, and integrated circuits. We weren't selling passive. We weren't selling like resistors or capacitors, just circuits and diodes and transistors. And what were those for? It's like, I don't know who your actual customer is and what your semiconductors are for. They're for mainframes, minis. Mini computers don't exist anymore today, really. But mainframes, minis, devices to run manufacturing plants and to run manufacturing lines. So copiers, for example, was a big buyer of semiconductors. All those kinds of companies that basically were automating processes. So you're calling these big companies and pitching them because that's, I imagine you have to call the bigger companies to try to pitch them these semiconductors. Yeah, we're calling aerospace and defense firms that are building airplanes and jets and electronic equipment for going into space. This was all in LA, very hot at the time. But, you know, everybody already had their vendors. Everybody already had their favorites. So it was like, how am I going to overcome this? I'm not a person that ever gets headaches or panics. But after about 10 days, I was going home with headaches and it looked bleak. Yeah, because basically your product would have to be cheaper or better, right? That's the only way you're going to get your foot in the door if you're saying that's true about everybody else, right? They already have the, all their vendors. And I'm selling the same thing they were selling. I'm selling the same diode made by the same guy. So what advantage do I have? We had no local inventory. We weren't authorized for the area. So I couldn't go deliver for that day. If somebody had a spot shortage, I couldn't go, oh, yeah, I've got the parts here. I'll just deliver them for you. We had nothing. So I decided to quit doing the canned speech because it didn't sound like me. 
I started calling guys and I started going right away to common denominators that we might share, like sports or what are you doing this weekend or girls or anything other than to do with selling because I wasn't getting even past the first 30 seconds with most guys. So I started to get some pretty good traction with having conversations. Finally, there was a company called Transtectors. The woman's name was Lewis Jameson. And she said to me, I've had vendors for years. Why should I buy from you? I spent like an hour on the phone with her begging. And she said, okay, I've got a part that I can't get anywhere. And when they were making parts in those days, they would make them, but they wouldn't continuously make them. They would make a part and then they might make it again in four months. So if the manufacturer sold everything they had, there was no more to be found until the manufacturer decided to make them again. And evidently, Transtector could not find these parts anywhere in the country. And it was holding up a big assembly line of theirs for power supplies. And they needed this device. So she said, look, if you find this device, I'll give you my business. I'll give you a chunk. So I called my offices and I called the buyer for the factory. And he goes, there's no parts. And I thought, huh, maybe there are people that they're selling them to that aren't using them all, that the manufacturer might be shipping directly, and maybe somebody has some surplus. So I called the manufacturer and told them that I was actually a buyer at my company I work for, which I was not, and said, hey, who are your top 10 buyers of this? And somehow I got the names of the companies all over the United States. And then I called them, and lo and behold, after a lot of begging, found three or four of them that all had surplus of those parts and didn't need them and would sell them to me and would sell them to me at way below the cost that we would normally buy them because they didn't need them. So I called Transtector, got the order, went back to my boss. He yelled at me, what are you doing? You can't go to manufacturers. We don't go do this. This is not who what we are. Oh my God. And then I showed him how much money we were going to make and that the transaction worked perfectly. And he said, okay, just this one time. To make a long story short, within probably two months or three months, that was the only thing I was doing in the company. And I was selling hard to find parts. I went from being no business to being the number one sales rep in the whole company within the first six months. And I developed a completely new line of business. So this kind of is one of those first tales of if you're not winning going one way, you better zig and zag and you've got to go find something else. You've got to be comfortable with change. You have to be comfortable going away from what everybody is telling you to do. And that's how I started in the semiconductor business. With the semiconductor business, how much money did you make on that first transaction when you're calling around and trying to find that hard to find part? Because I don't even know how much it's cost or how much money you could have made or, or whatever. You know, you got to remember in 1975 terms, the first order was for $75,000 with about $25,000 profit. My salary at the time, my annual salary was $12,000 a year. Wow. So you bought back those semiconductors for how much and then sold it to that lady for how much? We bought it for about 45000 and sold it for 75000 Normally on a $75,000 order, you'd have about a 15% margin. But because we bought them surplus, that's when I started basically doing what you call arbitrage. Find somebody sitting with stuff they didn't need and finding somebody who was desperate that wanted it. And yeah, it might sound a little needle in the haystack, but once the word got out that we were doing that and I could do it, people started calling me saying, hey, I hear you can find crap that nobody can find. 
and I'm going to get fired if I don't have these parts on an assembly line in three days. Out I would go. How many semiconductors was that transaction where you bought back $45,000 worth of them? How many of them were there? They were about $3 a piece. Oh, so there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of them. Okay. Yes. All right. That's, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, how much are these? Okay. So you know, 15,000. There's 15,000 that you found basically on that first order. Yeah. I remember them being right at three bucks a piece, but the price in the general market was about five bucks a piece. So I bought them at a big discount. So I started doing my arbitrage and then the company was having so many other troubles in all its other offices that they wouldn't give me a raise. I was barely getting any commission and I was generating for them. By the time I took my second job, I was generating for them almost a hundred thousand a month in gross profit. And I was making a thousand and I was getting a commission of maybe another seven or eight hundred dollars. They flew out and they told me that if I work really hard for about five years like this, that one day maybe I can become a manager. I went home and told my wife, she wasn't my wife yet, it was like, this is very depressing. And I was solicited by another company that had been doing brokering, had been doing arbitrage, had heard of me. And they tripled my salary and gave me a big commission. And how long were you at that company before you moved on to the next one? Eight months. So not long at all. And how long did it take you to do that first transaction? Because I know you said the guy said you only had one month, right? To two try weeks. to do some. Oh, in two weeks? Wow. Two weeks. That was when I changed everything and we completed the transaction during the third week. And then I booked a couple more with her. She started booking business with me and then she gave me some friends of hers. So I got about six, seven accounts in the first month, all of which doing business with us. It's like one of those things. Somebody told somebody there was no internet or any way to market yourself other than word of mouth. There was no Bel Air internet, you said? There was nothing but me and a phone. Yeah, this might sound dumb, but I'm like, did he even have computers in? Like, how did you track everything? I'm just curious. I like being in the mindset of how it was back then. I did everything on three by five cards. And I came up with this thing. I tracked what I talked to the person about, put it on the three by five card. When I was going to call them back, I put it in a, like a tickler system of dates. I also sent everybody I talked to a handwritten note, thanking them for taking the time to get on the phone with me, that I'd be back in touch, and that service is what I was all about. So I wrote everybody a handwritten note every single day, 50 or 100 of those. Some people responded to that and were impressed that I would actually do that. Well, I think this is important for anyone who's listening now who's young, getting out of college, right? Like, how can you stand out, especially now in a digital age where everything's email? If you take the time, because I did the same thing when I was doing brokerage, just like I actually would write handwritten notes because it's what a guy said to do. And I'm like, dude, that's smart because a lot of these people, especially today, right? Like how many handwritten notes does anyone get today? I think it's a good idea. Think how you can differentiate yourself as a salesperson. And it seems like that's what you did. And maybe other people could learn from this before, I guess, we move on to your next job. Well, if you take a look at it, product differentiation or personal differentiation is the part of the fundamental foundation of being successful. If you're just one of a million, nobody cares. When we set up LR Internet, that same lesson, let's do the opposite of what the phone companies are doing. Let's actually listen to the customer and let's do what they like and what they want rather than what we want to tell them to do. My father was in ladies' clothing. There was a company called The May Company, which none of you will remember, a huge retailer, very successful. And he had a book written by Mr. May. And the title of the book was Give the Customer What They Want. And I read that book at a young age. 
And a lot of it I didn't understand, but I came away with the thing of, if you give people what they want, they'll actually buy it. If you try to tell them what they should buy, you will not have as much success. So the key was to listen to the customer and give them that. So when we set up Bel Air, going back to that, what does the customer want? They want convenience. They want quality. They want to talk to a person. They don't want to get screwed around. They don't want to talk to a phone tree. They don't want to wait around all day. And they don't want to be lied to and misinformed like the telcos and the cable companies do. So that differentiator is one of my kind of, I guess you'd call the truths. If you don't have a difference, and I mean a lot of them, that you can point to and build on, don't try to start a business. Well, yeah, thank you for pointing out, like I said, these little small details of you even starting your first job. So I guess after nine months, you were able to parlay that into another sales position at a different company with almost the same thing, but you're getting paid three times the amount? Yes. And what happened was I went there and they didn't buy very well. At my first company, I started actually doing buying, and which they never let anybody do. And they usually separate buyers from the sellers because they don't want guys doing both sides of the transaction and learning the business. Exactly what you said there. That's what I want to point out. They're like, okay, because then Terry would be like, I'm doing everything. I could go start up my own company doing this, right? That's exactly what happened. The second company I went to work for, the buyers were terrible. So I said to the big boss, I said, look, I got to buy my own stuff. And they can't get it done. Time is of the essence. They say they wait two days to do. I mean, if I sold something, I'm on the phone to buy it within 30 seconds. They were taking two days. What? Why? Why not? Jump on it right away. So then I started buying. Then product came in and the warehouse couldn't get shipments done correctly. And we're screwing around and waiting a whole day. So I told the guy, look, I'll come in early and I'll box up all my stuff and I'll do my own shipping because I can't afford the mistakes that these guys are making back there. So as you can imagine, I'm alienating everybody in the company about who's this young shit doing this stuff and why is he doing it and who does he think he is? And literally within two months, I'm doing 60% of the revenue of the company, two, three months, and I'm killing it. And the company is having financial problems because of other things. So they're not paying the bills. Some of the vendors are holding up orders. They're not collecting the money they're owed. So I started doing my own collections because at times they would say, if you get the money in, we'll let you use the money to go buy your stuff. But we don't have any money right now. So I started doing collections. So in essence, I'm doing everything. I kept having so many run-ins with the bosses and with people there. I just said, you know what? I'm doing everything. I might as well just go do this on my own. I did not have any vision of being an entrepreneur. I didn't have any drive or any idea that I was going to be this huge success. I just wanted to get paid what I was supposed to get paid and make money and not have people screw up my orders. And the final straw on the camel's back was when they did not have enough money to pay my commissions and they started renegotiating and asking me to make less money. And that'll do it. <laughs> that took me out the door. And when I decided to do this, I was 23 years old. Yeah. So how long were you at that company before you moved on to? Six months. Okay. So it's still a quick turnaround even then. Wow. It's pretty impressive that if you're waiting to get your money, like you're saying, and you're doing everything, it seems like it makes sense. But I was going to say the other thing too, before we move on, I guess you starting your own first company there. Like how many hours were you working? Can you give us a, more of a mindset before you made that first transition into your first company? I was working in those days, everything was on fixed hours because people closed. It's not like today where everybody works all the time. So I was putting in 45 hours, 50 hours. I was catching the East Coast. So I would be in at seven and I would leave at four-ish, five-ish, but no weekends. Nobody was ever open on the weekends, no nights. 
know nothing like that at the time. But when I decided to go out on my own and my wife were just married then, she was very supportive of it. But everybody, including family, looked at me and said, what the hell do you think you're doing? You're 23 years old and you're just young and dumb. People don't start companies until they're in their 30s. And what do you know? Why would anybody do anything with you? This is including my own family that thought I was crazy. And I said, no, no, I think I can actually do this. So I went out and I had a few thousand bucks in the bank and I went to my local banker and somehow convinced him to give me a 10 grand credit line, then took that 10 grand and my other money and went to another bank and showed them that money. And they gave me a $20,000 credit line. And I started with 3,000 of my own money and 30,000 borrowed. And I guess you've been in LA the whole time throughout this whole venture, I guess, going up to even till today. Yes. And when you're doing that, when you've got that money, what happened? Did you start working from home or tell us about setting up your first business there in what, 1975? Yep. 1975. I took a little office right near the airport, a little cubby office. It was maybe enough room for two desks and some boxes. My wife did the books. She'd always done helped her father do his books when she was growing up. So she started doing the books and I was selling and shipping and buying. That's how we started it. Well, that's pretty amazing too. So did your wife quit her job or did she not have one at that point? I can't recall, but she did quit or she was working. After that, she never worked again for any entity other but us combined. We've been married 45 years, and I would say she's worked 44 of those 45 years with only time off for babies along the way. So she's always worked in all the companies I've run, worked by my side. Did you know that companies that blog consistently receive 67% more leads than those that don't? Consistent blogging is important, but who has the time to research keywords, come up with topics, write content, and more? BKA Content, a content writing agency with 10 plus years of experience, now offers a monthly subscription that will do it all for you. They offer different sized packages depending on how many blogs per month you'd like. You'll have a dedicated account manager that will do all your keyword research and topic creation and blog writing. You can even get social media posts, stock images, and meta entitled tags. All of your monthly blog posts delivered directly to your inbox, 100% ready to publish. If you sign up right now, you can get up to one month's worth of blogs for free. Go to bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and get your free month of blogs. That's bkacontent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and again, get your free month of blogs. Yeah, and where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool, yeah, so why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up, I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, my, the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. Wow. All right. So this is kind of exciting. 1975, you and your wife got a small little office by the airport. And what was the name of your business? It was called, after my wife, I called it Gentronics. Her name is Gentil, G-E-N-T-I-L-L-E. 
So I called it Gentronics. And off to the races we went, you know, worked like a dog every single day, made sure my shipments were out, did my collections every morning. You had to be very disciplined. What I had learned from watching my dad run his business and even watching my father-in-law and his business after I met my wife, very disciplined people and hardworking and grinding, really hard grinding. So you hate doing collection work. Collections is, is terrible. But every morning, that was the first thing I did because it was the worst thing you had to do every day. It was call up and bug people to pay you or threaten, cajole, beg, whatever it took, which was no fun compared to selling or buying. So I did the worst job the first thing every morning. So what I found with work, do the worst first because all of a sudden it's four o'clock and I'll do it tomorrow and I'll put it off. And nobody likes to deal with crappy work. And everybody has preferences of what they'd like to do within their workday. But I took it upon myself to make sure that I did those calls. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had inherited that grinding instinct from my parents and from my immigrants' grandparents that came here dirt poor and built businesses and worked like dogs tirelessly to scrap out a living. Somehow that came through a little bit, thank God, in my DNA. And through watching what they did, I found that the grind was a little bit of my secret weapon. I've actually gotten that same advice, too. I remember one of my friends, his dad told him that, and he told me that, and that always stuck with me. Get the thing you don't want to do out of the way, and then almost everything else you do for the rest of the day is almost more exciting. Because then if you would have put that at the end of the day, you would have just kept putting it off, right? So you're coming in every morning, and then were you actually profitable your first year? How easy was the transition of you doing it underneath, quote unquote, like a bigger company versus doing it underneath Gentronics? Oh, I was profitable day one. And then we had a guy rip us off. He gave us a bad check for $30,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> Everything I made the first four months of my company, I lost in one transaction. So it was rough and tumble. Tell us about the $30,000 check, how you realized it was bad. We sent a shipment out. We got the check back, UPS COD. So when you sent in those days, the UPS would collect the check and bring it back to you. So they did. I put it in the bank. It's no good. And guys in Texas. And the laws for bad checks in those days, especially in Texas, were almost nothing. Today, you just put a guy in jail for that. In those days, it was, you're lucky to get anything. So after three or four months of attorneys, threats, and everything, the guy just went broke on me, never paid me, kept the money. And that was it. I lost $30,000. God, that must have hurt pretty bad being your first business. And it seems like you were saying, like you said, you made money the first three, four months. And then I guess back to zero once that guy does that to you, huh? It was literally back to zero. And it was like getting shot. And this is again, where that grind kind of comes in. After that, turning around and going back in the office the next day, shaking it off. And even as we went through our collection efforts to try to get paid, shaking that off every day and going, okay, I can't pay attention to that right now. I got to go sell. I got to go start it again. I can't be defeated here. I just got to keep going. And that was a very, very traumatic time. I mean, my wife and I were just like, God, we were all celebrating and everything was hunky dory. And then a quick slap right across the face by reality. Yeah, because I don't want to scoot across because, again, this is like your first business and this is like a slap in the face and it hurts. And I want everyone to understand, too, like when they're starting their first business, they're going to come into hurdles and it's probably going to hurt for a day or two at least. But eventually you just got to block it out. You can't just keep dwelling on it. You got to keep moving on. 
Well, one of the things, and again, kind of my truths about being an entrepreneur, and when I speak about this to people, and they're out there in the crowd, young entrepreneurs, everybody's very eager. And the first thing I say to them is, how much of a beating can you take? What are your worst experiences and how long did they go on? And what do you do when you get a beating? Do you lean in? Do you run? Can you handle it? Can you compartmentalize it? Can you stand up to it? Can you refuse to lose? And if you don't have those traits, don't become an entrepreneur. Because no matter what you do, no matter how successful you are, no matter how great your idea is, you will come to that day where you're going to be taking a beating like you've never seen. And it is emotionally traumatic. And I'm talking about this doesn't go for a day. Sometimes these things go for months. And you've got to sit in that chair and just keep pushing that rock up that hill. No matter how many times that rock keeps rolling back down on you, you just got to stay at it. And that's a very difficult emotional thing to endure. And that's why a lot of times when I talk to people, I say the vision of what an entrepreneur is versus what they really are, there's a disparate perspective between the two. And you've seen that, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing us up. Your stories like this of the trials and tribulations, especially your first one after you open up a business. I like hearing about it because anyone who's listening now and they're starting their first business, these are like, okay, if Terry could overcome that, then I'm going to come up with something. And that always reminds people, I'm like, and any of the entrepreneurs we've had on, it just people have been through worse than you're going through right now, right? So just relate to these stories. And you're like, okay, if that guy could push on or if that lady could push on, I can too. So I guess from that, how many years did he do Gintronics here? Well, the saying I used to have on the wall was tough times don't last, tough people do. I can guarantee you, you will have trials and tribulations. And the minute you get kind of like successful and you start taking the next challenge, more trials and tribulations. So it is part of the landscape. It is the environment of being an entrepreneur. So it never ends. Even running Bel Air the last 18 years, oh my God, like 50 stories of, are you kidding me? What did they do? That's illegal. That's unethical. They can't do that. Sure as hell they did. And we had to grind through it, fight through it. So how did you fight through Gentronics? Well, we built the company over a couple of years and about two years, and we hired a few people in warehouse and a guy to help me sell. Then we ran into another individual who'd been a big chip manufacturer's rep, so a big semiconductor rep, and he knew everybody, and he knew who had excess parts and who didn't, but he hadn't ever actually been an arbitrage trader. He just had knowledge, and everybody loved this guy, and he was kind of a partier, and we weren't, and he was really very social, and I wasn't, so we decided to merge our efforts, and he and I and one of the guys that worked for me put our heads together and expanded the company and turned it into, took the name of the other guy's company that had been in business for many years called Mormac that was well known in the industry. Because Gentronics, we were very small, nobody knew who we were. Everybody knew who Mormac was. They had been in the business for 15 years. And so we got together and allowed us to get bigger credit lines and expand the business. This was 1978, late and early 79. And then something happened that was really pretty crazy. And that is a thing the fax machine came along and gaming machines came along, electronic gaming machines. And the one thing that they needed lots of is electronic parts. And there was a shortage of parts starting in late 78 and going through early 80 that was unbelievably bad. 
there was the growth of use of certain parts was tenfold and the manufacturers couldn't keep up. So in that environment, I had already learned not only how to do arbitrage in the United States, but also how to do arbitrage and find parts out of the country. And we found that manufacturers would manipulate pricing in different sectors, different parts of the world, and would also ship to some parts more often than other parts. And they had what you'd call questionable business practices. So into that realm, we jumped and found surplus in Germany and sold it here and found stuff here and sold it to Japan. And we just took off. So in 1979, we closed our year at almost 40 million in revenue with $10 million net profits. Now, when you think about 10 million net profit in 1979, that's equivalent today of 30 mil. And this is two years into it. So at the time, I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm the golden boy. So we decide to start expanding and opening up other businesses. And I start getting entrepreneurial. So we decide to open up a mail order parts company for hobbyists and open up a hobby store for electronics. We decide to get in the board manufacturing and also computer manufacturing up in Silicon Valley. PCs had not come out yet. It was the first ones got launched called Altair and MSI. And so we started making boards for them. And Terry just decided that I was so smart that I could do anything. And I was, she's... 26, 27. I did want to say too, I'd look this up. You're exactly right. You're saying, I looked at the inflation calculator. Yeah, you made 10 million net profit, you're saying, when you're like 27, which is equivalent to 30 million net profit today in that one year. Yeah. That has to be insane. So what did you do personally? Like, did you get a nice house and everything? Like, No, I took all the money, not all of it because I did buy a home and stuff, but I had bought it beforehand and I lived in a modest home, but we decided to, during that time, we'd get in the computer manufacturing, we'd start these other divisions and we would leverage up because shoot, what could go wrong? And I'm the golden boy and everybody's looking around and within the industry, I'm well known. I'm like, look at this kid, my God. And everybody's going, look what you're doing. And everybody's amazed, including me. And my dad was lecturing me at the time of the broken clocks right twice a day. You're just getting lucky. And, <laughs> not, and, not very supportive. <laughs> no, not him. And this could turn around. And it was like, look, let them do whatever they want to do. You know, I can handle anything. So we're booming. 1980 comes around and the economy had been going crazy and inflation was going crazy. There's all of a sudden a new president. And who was a president? Ronnie, I think, became the prez at that time, Reagan. Paul Volcker came in at some point, and they started raising interest rates. Now, they rose them eventually to 18%, and they dried up the capital markets. So we had lines of credit for our computer manufacturing firm and also for our semiconductor distribution company, Mormac. The name of the computer company was California Computer Systems. That was the name of your company now? Yeah, one of the divisions. All of a sudden, 80 comes, interest rates start climbing, business activity slows, the manufacturers started catching up to demand for fax machines and for game machines, and they started slowing down in sales. So you are looking at the beginning of a recession. So I saw it coming. We dumped, we had like $3 million in inventory. And my partners, it was January of 80. We made so much money, we took the whole company to Hawaii in December of 79. All the employees, their families, everybody. Carte blanche, paid the whole thing. 
that's how much money it was money was out of our ears and that didn't even like feel like it hurt at all right <laughs> no it was nothing our biggest problem was taxes because taxes were so high was california still really bad with taxes even then no it wasn't nearly as bad it was federal government was the problem yeah, I knew federal still would be an issue, but I didn't know if like state tax it was still bad then. Because again, this is a whole different mindset. I have no idea what it was like back then. Obviously today, we know it's hard to do business there. California was a pro-business state in those days. It is no longer. So this was a long time ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm joking there. <laughs> Trust me, this was a different world. So I was looking out there and I see all these things. And when credit starts coming short and the demand kind of started softening, something I learned from my dad in ladies' clothing, they had seasons, four seasons a year. So when he would get inventory, and if it didn't sell like in the first month of the season, he would deeply discount it, almost to cost and sell it. And I would say to him, why don't you just take like 10 or 20% off and then maybe another 10%, maybe you can sell for more. And he says, make your first loss your worst and get out. Don't ever chase. And I said, how do you learn? Oh, no, that's what you do in retail. And everybody that chases loses. So I see the softness in the market. And my partners go, let's hold the parts. They, they're just down a little bit. They're going to bounce back up. And I'm looking at, and I'm wandering, and I'm talking to guys, and I'm seeing our bid desk is way down, like 50%. So I argued with them for two weeks. Meanwhile, prices on our, on our portfolio dropped, on our inventory portfolio dropped another like 5% in two weeks. And I forced them, yelling and screaming, to dump $2.9 million, all of our inventory for cash. Before that, if you held inventory, every time you held it, it went up in value during the shortage. If you bought something for a dime, it was at 20 cents the next day. So holding inventory was critical to success. And I went completely the other way because I said, you don't want to get caught with this stuff if it keeps going down. Make your first markdown your last markdown. So we took, I think, 2.85 or 2.9. I remember we took a little discount and they were pissed at me. They didn't even talk to me. There was a lot of acrimony. Within 60 days, that inventory was worth less than a million dollars. Within another 60 days, it was worth $300,000. That's how bad the market turned. So we went from making printing money, and we did $40 million. In 1980, our business reversed. We did $10 million in business. Lost money, bleeding. The, bank, the banks start giving us a hard time and charging more and more interest. Even though we had collateral and equipment, the bank's Citicorp decided they didn't want to be lending anything under $20 million west of the Mississippi. So we got a notice. We're closing down your credit lines at the computer manufacturing firm. You got 90 days to get out. Well, there's no banks lending. There's nothing you can do. Nobody. So I understand interest rates going up, right? And you're saying there's a recession, but why did all these parts, no one going to build any more electronics? I guess that's what I'm a little confused by. What happened was the manufacturers started catching up after almost a year and a half to two years. We had to build a fab plant. You just can't say, I'm going to go make more parts. You have to have a silicon fabrication. You got to expand. So it takes about a year and a half. So they started making more. Plus, the Japanese into the late 70s, early 80s, nobody in America would buy any Japanese semiconductors. In fact, we used to export from the United States semiconductors to Japan. And the Japanese product was looked at as second rate. Quality was not up to snuff, blah, 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 blah. Well, when the shortage hit in 79.80, all of a sudden companies that were going to dive that didn't get parts took a try with the Japanese manufacturers. Right, because they didn't have a choice, right? Because they couldn't get the parts here in America, you're saying. 
couldn't get the parts. And I'm selling parts that normally cost 15 cents. I'm selling them. I remember Bally was buying stuff that was 15 cents. I'm selling them at a buck a part. And some guys couldn't just eat that price. Other guys could. So the guys that couldn't eat it went to Japan and started buying chips. So it was very strange. We exported to Japan for years. And literally within a nine-month year time frame, we became a net importer of our company from Japan and started pushing Japanese goods. That extra surplus coming on top of the American manufacturers creating more product, along with the fact that we hit a recession. So fax machine sales go down, businesses go down. You couldn't borrow any money. The gaming industry took a huge hit. So demand for product dropped and supply increased geometrically. Yeah. So it was multiple things. Cause that's what I was going to say. I figured it couldn't just been like one thing. And that's what I was wondering about the manufacturing. Everything was kind of US based, you were saying basically till that point, And they had to go to Japan because it was cheap enough and they couldn't get the product here. And I figured, I guess, from your point of view, you're not using computers yet. Or are you starting to use computers? Cause it's kind of hard. I would figure for you to find this information till it starts happening. Right. I feel like maybe it's easier to find those trends today versus back then. No, we were actually setting market in our company. We were a broker and we were putting out prices every day on what's called a telex machine to a couple thousand companies all over the world. We set market price. Oh, wow. Your company did? Yeah, bid ask on four or 500 semiconductors every single day. That's how we were trading and becoming known. And so, yeah, I developed that. You like stock brokerage, let's have a bid ask. And it seemed to make sense. And we were doing, why not be the market makers? Why not establish ourselves as the guys? And so this is up to 1980. Do you still consider this kind of your first company? Because I know y'all had merged earlier. Well, then California Computer Systems and Hobby World was our stores and our mail order. And then we started also in, don't want to get ahead of myself, but we started one of the first gaming companies in 81, software games. So going back to 80, we're looking at this thing and how did everything I had touched had turned to gold. And all of a sudden, wherever you looked, we were being swamped. We were trying to sell computers and guys didn't have credit, couldn't pay their bills. It was just like a complete credit crunch. We were just getting buffeted. So we had to sell off the computer manufacturing firm for the literally all the equipment costs that we paid, plus a little extra. And then to get out of the problem we had with the banks. As my wife said to me as we were going through this, how did somebody that was so smart get so stupid so fast? What is going on? And this is where you learn that I don't care how good you are. When you get into this kind of storm, you're going to take a beating. Do they call this a shit storm? Oh, it was worse. <laughs> My kids used to ask him about what was the worst in a, of your tribulations over the years. Oh, there's so many. But that one was terrible. This was your first huge one because I guess we talked about the other one kind of when you started. You got the wrong check, but yeah, you were golden boy in 79 and then 80. We had all this cash and then the tax guys hitting us and then we're starting to bleed. And then the partners didn't agree with me. I was saying like, let half the company go. It's going to get worse. No, let's keep everybody. So we're bleeding and I'm fighting with them. And so finally, and during that time also, we had seen the game industry, Atari, like Atari machines and stuff, but Texas Instruments had come out and Commodore had come out with home game consoles. So somehow we decided to get in that business. How big was your company before you started letting people go at this point? I guess the California computer company when you're fighting. 
Oh, my God. California Computer Systems was probably 150 to 200 employees. Wow. So, and in 75, it was just you and your wife. So, in five years later, you had 175 employees? Oh, that's just up there. And we had a guy running it, and we were up there all the time. But they're up there, and then Mormac had about 70 employees. Uh, Hobby World had 40 some odd employees, 50. I was overseeing. But I did have partners, and different guys were doing different things on a day-to-day -day basis. But I was the largest shareholder and kind of the chief lunatic of the group of being very strong-willed and very difficult when I wasn't getting my way. And it was tough times. By that time, we weren't getting along, as you might imagine, and different people had their visions. And one of the things, we started the gaming company, and this turned out to become a tremendous success in this terrible time. And we started developing gaming software. Now, obviously, I know nothing about it, neither did my partner, Pat. But we found some guys that could do some simple design. I went on the road and met with Texas Instruments. We got a hold of Commodore, and we pitched them. They needed games, and they didn't have enough developers. So they contracted with us to develop games after we, we did a couple for them. And the cool part about this was they said they would pay us a flat amount per game. Well, when you develop a game and you, let's say you have somebody slash somebody with a sword, it's the same code to do that slash in every single program. So I quickly figured out and started talking to the programmers about instead of designing everything from start every single time, why don't we library various parts of our code and just modify it for the game? So our development time would go down from, and they had paid us, they had established a value per game based on what they thought development time would be, which was about three to four months. Well, we figured out how to get it down to about six weeks, which cut our costs way back per game. We could deliver more games. And so the manufacturers were like, wow, look at all these games. They gave us more orders. And so that division starts taking off. But meanwhile, my partner and that, the guy that was running that division with me, he and I are fighting like cats and dogs. It's just not working. And my wife hated them and it was just terrible. So while we're making all this money, and we're doing all this stuff. We actually started to design our own games. And that one took off. A game company was Axon. And all the stores started buying it. It was our own independent. Instead of selling something to Texas Instruments to put their own logo on, we did our own. And we're killing it. One day, I'm at that office. And the company's name was Datasoft. I'm in flip-flop shorts and a t-shirt. And in walk a bunch of suits. We're in a warehouse district in LA. It's like, what are you guys doing around here? They said, oh, we're representatives of the Gillette Family Trust. So that even begs the question further, what the hell is Gillette doing here? He said, we have a $100 million family fund. We want to buy tech companies, and we want to buy yours. It was like, huh, really? And this is at a time, obviously, we're getting hammered in our other companies and losing money and having to sell off California computer, and we're all fighting and trying to figure out what we're going to do. So the next day they came back, they put a piece of paper on the table, kind of folded, rolled it across the table, and the number was $2 million. And I went, really? I was kind of surprised at $2 million. And they went, oh, no, that's just our beginning bid. That's our beginning number. And they upped it on the spot to $3 million. Needless to say, within a day, we signed a deal to sell it. And then they had a big problem. They didn't want both of us. And neither one of us wanted to work with each other. So they liked Pat better than they liked me. He was more social and kind of bullshitted them. And so anyway, we get done 
and we get to the transaction and he stays on. I leave. I warned them that he didn't know what he was doing and putting him in charge was crazy and blah, 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 blah. And I'd worked with the guy and they said, just bitter. You're just being bitter. So they gave me my money and they kicked me out. Gillette and he ran that company into bankruptcy within 18 months. He got sued by Gillette for misrepresentation by the thing and they took everything he had. And I walked away with my money and that was that. And Gillette came back to me, the family did, and said, we think you did something. And I said, don't even talk to me. You thought that Pat was right. You thought he knew everything. And I warned you, you didn't even listen to me. In fact, when we closed the deal, whenever you close a deal, everybody gets together, signs the papers, drinks champagne, goes out for the big lunch, the whole celebration. When we sold Datasoft, everybody went in one room. I was shuttled off into a junior partner, a junior associate's office in this huge law firm to sit by myself, and they were delivering the papers to me to sign and then bring back. And then when we were done, I was excused. So my wife was pissed. I was waving the check, and I said, look, with him in charge, God bless them. Good luck. I'm just glad I'm the hell away from him. What I learned is right time, right place overcomes all. So you can't confuse you, you being in the right place, right time with you being smart or successful. You might have gotten yourself to that right place at the right time, but it's not necessarily going to stay there. It's going to move. And sometimes there is no right place, right time. And when that happens and you think you're really smart because all the factors went your way, the wave was going with you, and all of a sudden you get hit with the 20-foot swell the other way, and you quickly realize you're fortunate to find those right time and right place situations. You have to take advantage of them, but you also have to always have one eye on that and the other eye on, oh my God, what's going to come next? And was this still all in 1980? That was 1981 and 82. Okay. And so like you said, just to make sure it's clear for everybody, you had about three different companies that were all kind of tech related. One made gaming, one still did the trading, right? And there was another one. There was four, computer manufacturing, semiconductor trading, hobby store and uh, hobby mail order for electronics and Datasoft. So there's actually four divisions at that time. Wow. And you're still, I guess, if you're talking about 82, you're young 30s at this point? I'm 30. Well, and at that point, at least like you survived the bad 1980, right? Did things get better with the semiconductors or no? No, no, it just, it kept, we got a bunch of tax advice about how to structure the company. Was it good advice or bad advice? Well, it was from the senior partner at Pete Marwick uh, Mitchell Tax Division, who was the guru of tax. And the advice was absolutely horrific. We got audited and <laughs> we literally spent a million dollars fighting that audit. And all that money I got for selling Datasoft went into fighting the audit and then paying the IRS. And one of the problems we had was I didn't want to do what the partners wanted to do because I felt there was a tax risk to us. They did it and they indemnified me. By the time the IRS hit us, they were both broke. So guess what? I got to pay. I got the opportunity. The fees and the settlement was almost one and a half, one and three quarter million, and two years of nothing but fighting with the IRS. And running up fees, like running up fees. Today, I just would have sued Pete Marwick and I would have owned them. They would have written a check because their, their advice was very bad. And it's a very long story. But suffice it to say that by the time 83 came around, we had split up the companies. Datasoft had been sold 
and Pat was off to his thing. I wasn't getting along with the semiconductor partner, so he bought me out of that one. We had sold California computer systems and used some of that money. We used the money to pay down the bank debt and also to help with the IRS and put some money in our pockets. So I'm left with Hobby World, the electronics stores and mail order. And to say it was a complete and utter failure at the time would be an understatement. So in 83, we're looking at a bankruptcy for the company, for Hobby World. Our revenue was $1 million. Our annual revenue was down to $1 million. We owed $2 million, of which a million was owed to family and friends, another million to creditors. And we had basically virtually no way out. Other than my home and about 40 grand, I was wiped out. Everything that I'd made, everything gone. So I literally was on the edge, teetering on the edge of even personal bankruptcy, completely wiped out, no way out. We were selling Atari computers and we couldn't do enough retail. Apple had taken off. We couldn't get out of the leases. So we got drained on the leases. Then we went BK. They came after me personally for the leases. It was misery misery beyond a doubt. And everybody said, give up, quit, close the place. You can't make it back. Just go to work for somebody. It was a good ride and forget about it. Well, if you haven't figured out by now, I'm kind of a persistent guy. So we tried to figure out what to do. And this is a great story that I think you guys will really love. My wife and I are totally depressed, don't know what to do what our next steps are. And so consistent with me, we decided to take a vacation to Acapulco and clear our heads. In the middle of the shitstorm, in the middle of just getting crushed, I said, you know, I just got to get out of here for five days. We're in Acapulco, we're on the beach, and I'm reading my Forbes. And there's an article in the Forbes magazine about a little outfit in New York City, a little retail outlet called 47th Street Photo who is selling gray market. They're getting IBM PCs from retailers and they're, and they're selling them. And they're not supposed to do that. It's gray market. The IBM resellers aren't supposed to give them to him, but the resellers are, can't sell everything they get. What caught my eye was there was a picture next to the article of a dark December morning, about five in the morning, six in the morning on a Sunday morning in the snow. And there's a line down the street and around the corner to go into that store that's going to open at seven o'clock in the morning on Sunday. And I went, what the hell are these guys doing? What is going on? So I read the article, got very interested, got home, got in a jet, went with my wife to New York. And I had done business with 47th Street Photo. I used to sell them parts that they used to put in the computers way back in the day. And also they had a hobby business too. So I knew who they were and they were run by a very difficult group to deal with. I'm going, how can these guys be running a successful retail operation? These guys are tough and maniacal. And when you call them, they would say, what do you want? That was the attitude in doing business with these guys. Yeah, that's how my wife picks up. So yeah, like, what do you want? <laughs> so I go to, we go to the store and they have the same attitude. If you don't know what you want, don't come here. The line is a mile long. What I found that they were doing, and I quickly figured out, they were selling the IBMs. IBM had set a kind of a retail suggested price, and all the stores were selling at this price. Well, they weren't. They were selling it at 20% under. They were only making like 15%, a small margin. But then they were selling the paper, the printer, the cable, the mouse, the computer cover, you know, everything, extra RAM, extra this. And that stuff, they were not selling discount. So they were buying paper for 25 bucks and selling it for 45. Well, it doesn't sound like much. 
But when you add up all that stuff, it impacted their overall margins and they were producing a lot of money. And I sat there and watched their turnstiles and they were turning like tens of thousands of dollars an hour. I literally stood in the store almost half the day, kind of wandering around, <laughs> trying not to be conspicuous. My wife was back at the hotel going, what are you doing? And I said, I just got to spend another hour. I got to look at this a little more. And she also looked at it and we said, oh my God, this thing is going crazy. So in my days of trading semiconductors, I knew how to buy and sell and get to gray market and do arbitrage. So I was comfortable with that concept, but I quickly ran the financial model and the margins and everything together. And I would have to sell about four times as many computers as I was selling a month or five times at those prices just to break even. And to make money, I was going to have to sell six or seven times what I was currently selling in other computer products. Yeah, Hobby World, because this is your only business left at that point. My only business. And I'm looking at that going, how could there be that much price elasticity? And we thought about it and thought about it, but we had tried everything. And this was the only choice. So we went out and bought a bunch of PCs. We ran a very stark ad in the LA Times on Saturday morning next to all the other computer store ads. And it was nothing but all white, surrounded in black outside of it, just bold and with the price and the picture of the computer and our phone number and name. That was it. Short story, our revenue went up tenfold first year. We went from a million to almost 10 million. And again, this is 83, 84. I wasn't even born at this point. Is this how they buy computers? Because I have no idea. It's just like they would look in a paper and then you look at the best price. Come to the store and you'd go demo it. It was old fashioned selling, onesie, twosie through the store. But what happened was people saw my ads and leasing companies started calling me to buy them because the other retailers wouldn't sell them their IBMs where I would. They wouldn't sell them. And then they were leasing companies for leasing them to the Fortune 500 guys. Because by 83, 84, by 84, corporate America started buying IBM PCs. So we, all of a sudden, we went to nine or $10 million. We completely walked away from our hobby business and started selling these PCs to people coming in for their businesses and started soliciting Fortune 500 accounts. Okay, so Hobby World at that point, you sold multiple electronic stuff, but then you decided to just go PC after you'd made this model? PCs and stuff related to PCs, but no more soldering irons or make-it-yourself home computers or ham radios, all the electronic gear crap. We shit-canned the whole mess. And with that, how much did a PC cost then? Do you remember? I'm just curious prices. Like seventeen ninety five was our first ad. 1795 Yep. Wow. And it was 2000 plus was the market price at the time. So, and what's weird, we found also that were certain price elasticity, like we didn't sell more computers at 1695 than at 1795 So we learned never to use the six, only the seven. But the minute you got to 1895 people thought it was too close to 2000 So we found like different price points, like 1495 worked just as well as 1395 as long as it was under 1500 we found like, wow, when we hit that price, the revenue went through the roof. What the hell is happening? So we paid off all of our creditors. I was going to say too, because I like doing this inflation thing. Now I'm looking at it. So basically they're saying today, that same computer would cost about 5,000 bucks. Oh yeah. As far as pricing then. And then what were people using them for? I don't think you could use it for the internet, right? That's all people use it to computers for today. <laughs> there was a company, there was a, a thing called VisiCalc 
which is a precursor for Excel. So for spreadsheets like crazy, VisiCalc was God. There was some word processing software. The printers were thousand bucks a piece. The stuff was expensive. And you had dot matrix printers, you had letter quality, you had all these different things that got developed over the years. Not like today, where everything is super high quality, super cheap. And then they also had cartridges, needed a lot of ink cartridges. So you could make a lot of money selling ink cartridges. And so by the time 85 hit, we were out of the bankruptcy, paid everybody off, profitable, growing like gangbusters. And then also I was allowed to get back in the semiconductor business and do trading again, because when I'd sold that other business to the partner, I was restricted until 85 about selling parts. Well, before we talk about that, so how many Hobby World locations did you have? In 81, we had four. And then we, during the bankruptcy in 83, we closed them all but one. So this company actually went into bankruptcy Yep. and you're able to come out of it? Yep. Wow. That almost never happens, right? Never happens. And that was when everybody was telling me, how dumb are you? You'll never make it back. The family was, it was very funny because two thirds of the family was yelling at me because I owed them money. And one third of the family said, you'll make it back. Don't worry. We'll throw a little good money after bad and we'll help you if you need a little bit of more backing. And so my grandmother's side of the family, my mother were on one side and my parents were divorced and my father and, and siblings and other people were on the other side. My oldest sister, I constantly chide her about this. She told me to go work at McDonald's and work double shift to pay her. So that was her response to my troubled times. And I had a two and a half year old and a newborn. Oh my God, it was just, the pressure was insane. I understand, you know, you switched the model. What was the name of the guys in New York? Their retail store, I was just curious. 47th Street Photo. They'd actually, they started selling cameras and then into electronics and then into computers. But this time of the bankruptcy, and this is one thing that I really want to cover for your listeners, is when I was looking at this bankruptcy, we had 2 million in debt, 1 million in revenue, nowhere to turn before we figured out about the PCs. And how do you handle something? What do you do? You're gone. You're dead. You're just, you, there's a heartbeat, but no brainwaves. That's it. What do you do to start back up? How do you attack it? What I learned and what I did was, because every day I got a hundred creditors calling me, people screaming at me, and the good employees leaving, the bad employees staying. <laughs> That's not good. It was, how are we going to make our house payment? I was inundated. I was just in a sea of shit and no way out. And what I learned, thank God, when you look at a hundred things, you get frozen and the fear compounded on that freezes you more. The worst thing that you can do in the face of adversity is freeze. So I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I said, I can't do everything in one day. So I'm going to pick two or three things that need to get done. And the rest of the shit's going to sit there till tomorrow. And you're going to do the hardest thing first every morning, like we discussed, right? Yep. I'm going to do some hard things. I'm even going to do some simple things. Have success at something. Build on that success each day. And the equivalent I can say is if you got to the Himalayas in flip-flop shorts and a t-shirt and somebody said, start climbing. If you look at that peak, you go, oh, there's no way I'm getting there. Instead, what you do is you look at your feet and you look about 10 feet in front of you and you shuffle up about 10 feet. And you say, got that done? Feel kind of good about it. You go up another 10 feet. So literally, I took those 100 different problems and issues. And I took a few at a time, got them resolved. And certain days, I went home early. At 3.30 or 4, I had my success. 
Get out of the place, go home and see the kids, balance your life, enjoy that extra hour with them because time with your family, you can never regain time with your family. Time is lost forever. Money comes and money goes. Time does not. And it started building on itself and building on itself. So I started wiping out a lot of the problems, but we still couldn't figure out that one big thing of what to do about the revenue to get it up enough that we could get out of the hole. And that's when the Acapulco trip took place. In Acapulco, I looked that up because I've heard it many a times, but I did not know where it was. It's basically central kind of Mexico, Mexico, but just so everyone knows. In fact, it was the Princess Hotel, the most luxurious hotel in Acapulco at the time. And of course, my family was like, what the hell are you doing down there? You're broke. <laughs> you're taking your family's money and running. <laughs> yes. What, what are you, huh? You're in Acapulco? I said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I think my ability to be a little bit oblivious at times really served me well during that. But, you know, you don't ever know where those answers are going to come from. And the ability to pivot, the ability to just not fall in love with something and the ability to turn into that adversity and to kind of get back in the boat again out into the storm and go further out in the ocean and go, I'm going to win this time. That is a very difficult trait to come by. And fortunately, that trait was honored by the results that we had. So, Holly, I've got an idea for our road trip. How about we do some Q&A from our Patreon members? What do you say? Do you think they're really going to like that? Probably not, but we need to give them more content so they get more bang for their buck in their Patreon membership. I'll tell them where we're going. We're going to the Grand Canyon and turn around and we'll see what happens. But I've been brainstorming a name for this set of Q&A, Holly. Are you ready for it? I finally think I came up with something clever. All right, hit me with it. All right, so we're going with our two dogs, George and Genevieve. They're in the back seat of the CRV, and then Holly's driving right now. But this is the name that I came up with. Doggy style, colon, a peak from behind, dot, 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 our Route 66 road trip. So you get it? We got two dogs, so we'll call it doggy style. And then a peak, since we're both peaks, we'll spell it P-E-E-K. And then this is a Route 66 road trip. And that episode's out right now for all Patreon members, so just check your Patreon feed. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, God, I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to ask the 47th Street photo, after you visit them, you come back to Los Angeles Hobby World, you implement what they're doing, right? Did it cost a lot of money to get all those computers? Because again, you said you were in bankruptcy. It didn't sound like you had any money. Like, how were you able to get the money just to even get these computers in the store and start selling those? We had earmarked, we had set aside when we went into bankruptcy about 40, 50 grand. So we had that money and I borrowed a little bit more from family and I bought like, I don't know how many it was, maybe 30 of them or something like that, computers. And when we ran the ad, we sold them all in a day, all in one day. And I went, we had people coming in and just, they didn't even want a demo. They just, because in the old days, you had to give them a demo and talk to them. And it was like, you only had two or three workstations to show people. So how many could you sell? We had people walk in and say, give me three, give me one, give me two. They were gone. So the next week we took all that money 
and I borrowed some more money. We bought, I don't know, something like around 70 machines, ran the ad on Friday and Saturday, gone by Sunday. And were most of those buyers, because if you're showing them VisiCalc, like basically Excel, right? Were these kind of business-oriented people who were coming in? Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of PC games and stuff like that at that point. These people buying these were not gamers. These people buying them were running, they were an accountant doing tax returns. They were a guy doing planning, running a small planning business or an architectural firm because there was some architectural stuff that started coming out. There were people that were, I would say, professionals. And then we started seeing mid-sized companies that had started to buy them. And then the leasing companies, I think I told you, leasing companies started, they would come in and they'd say, we need 200. And it was like, what? And then we started finding out where they were leasing them because we were doing repairs and installations. So we started contacting those companies directly and saying, if you don't want to lease, you want to buy, we'll sell them to you. And they said, okay. How about that first weekend? Let's just say that again, just go back to that. After you put that in the paper and you sold all those computers with 30 something, how did you feel after that day? Oh shit. <laughs> it was. But was it jubilation? Cause that's incredible. I, I thought I got, maybe I got lucky. Maybe there's something, don't get too excited too quickly, even though look at 47th Street Photo. They've been doing this for a year and the line is a mile long. But I thought, but maybe I hit something. So that's where we doubled down and put the money. We went right out and doubled down on this. When you have success, I have a thing. I, I love that old thing about Sherman's of the Sea from the Civil War, where he just basically burned everything in its wake to make sure that he couldn't lose. That kind of maniacal obsession to when you start winning, you take that momentum and you drive it. You shove everything down everybody else's throat. Today, you hear this thing common. You know, when I find my passion, I'm going to work hard. Or this is my passion. Let me tell you something. If you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're looking at it's a passion, don't even do it. You've got to be obsessive, compulsive, maniacal. Passion, don't get it. And the other thing is, a lot of young people today always, and I heard this even when I was growing up, when I find what I want to do, I'm going to really work hard at it. The truth of the matter is, and my grandpa told me this, really work hard and you'll find the stuff you love to do. The working hard comes first, not what you're doing. Learn to love that. And I thought he was crazy when he told me that. It was like, Grandpa, but what if you're doing something you hate? Doesn't matter. Work like a dog. It'll take you there. Grandpa, this doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Wouldn't it be like you get excited about something you like? Ah, you're just a dumb kid. Listen to what I'm telling you. And much of what my grandfather taught me, I'm in the process of teaching my own grandchildren and incorporated in the years of incorporated over the years of running my business. So when people say they have a passion, it's not enough. I went to a incubation tank over here run by a guy who's had huge successes and sold a bunch of companies, software and stuff, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's opened up his think tank. And I asked him, what's going on with the incubator? What's your biggest challenge? He says, I got a million entrepreneurs that come in here and they go through entrepreneur burnout at two years. I go, well, what do you mean? Is it all? He goes, 90% of them at two years say enough's enough. I have no life. My wife is mad at me. We have no money. I'm taking a beating. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I thought I'd be in a series A or B and rich by now. Oh my God, I just want out. So entrepreneurial burnout was his number one risk in bringing guys in. And he says, I want a guy who's a little bit crazy. You look at jobs and obviously he was a lot crazy. And I knew Gates 
when we had California Computer Systems, Microsoft was not in the software business. It was actually in the board business. And we made their boards for them. And I met Gates at the time because he came to our facility and looked us over. He was a real difficult guy, and we decided not to do much business with him. <laughs> and that was obviously before DOS and everything else and his fame. But it was pretty crazy. I think it was in 1979 sometime, right around there. I can't recall exactly, but it was before the IBM PC came out and he started creating their OS for them. I guess after you met Steve Jobs and again, coming back to Hobby World, it sounded like in 1985, you made that transition to making that profitable. And so like what happened with Hobby World from there? Well, we changed the name to HW Electronics because we had a challenge of selling computers to people in corporate America with the name Hobby World. It makes sense. Purchasing just wouldn't buy it. And it was crazy because it's the same. It's an IBM PC or it's a Hewlett Packard printer. What do you care? Nope, nope. So we had to transition our name. And then we also went, started really going away from retail at all in the 85 to 87 timeframe. And we started doing more corporate America installations, drop-offs, that kind of thing of where it was more, we sold it over the phone and delivered a product. People weren't coming in. It was less and less. And as you did that was, I guess you called it HW, which makes sense. Hobby World is HW, right? So HW Electronics. As you transition that from doing retail to more of this, I guess, selling direct to offices, like how big did your company get from there? Because I imagine there's only a few people at the retail store. Well, we grew over the period between 85 and 95, 96 to well over 100 million in revenue. And when we were back in 85, I probably had at least 70 to 80 competing computer stores, Computerland, Businessland, Intercom, MicroAge. The landscape was littered with computer retailers and wholesalers and distributors. The competition was brutal. By the time we sold in 97, 96, 97, there were about seven or eight left. All of them got wiped out. And we were fortunately one of the people that wiped them out instead of vice versa. What we did was we expanded on the model. We talked about earlier at 40 Cent Street Photo, they gave the computer away, but they got all the extra peripheral stuff and they sold it and they made their margin. We started doing installs and loading your software on your computer and adding RAM and kind of beefing up your purchase for you. And we started doing that in-house. So we started buying the IBMs, what you call virtually stripped. And we did sub-assembly work, adding other hardware to it, parts and things, and maybe a bigger hard drive or tape backups or integrating it with a printer, putting a printer board in, and then selling them the printer and the paper, and then delivering and installing. So when you got done, we would charge them $10 to load this software, $20 to load that software, $10 for this, $40 to bring it out, $50 to set it up. We would take a maybe a hardware purchase of $1,500 that had maybe $150 profit on the PC, and we would turn it into about twenty-three dollars to $2,400, all of which was margin, because a lot of it was fees, not just selling a product. So we started doing that and delivering to corporate America, and nobody in those days would do it. They would just drop the boxes off at the dock and say, you figure it out. So we figured that we could make a differentiator there. So we did this and it was a massive differentiator. And nobody could figure out how to basically do sub-assembly and they couldn't do it efficiently. So we figured out 
again, kind of how to do it officially. My days of running and working in California computer systems and doing computer assemblies there and understanding the business. And then at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, barcodes started coming out. And what barcodes allowed you to do is allowed you to track an item vis-a-vis the code. We bought one of those barcode makers and a gun. Every time product came in, we coded it and gunned it. And then when we did a sub-assembly, we could figure out all the components in there just by those tags because we put them on the piece of paper as we put everything in. And we were really able to automate how fast we could put components in the box and get orders out. And it like doubled our speed. Plus, we knew our cost on every single item that we put in that PC because it was tied back into procurement vis-a-vis the barcode and the item, the actual purchase order. In those days, parts would go up and down in price, hard drives would go up and down in price. So it was absolutely essential that you knew your cost. So we developed a software which really helped speed up our assembly lines like crazy. So we did it in-house. It was just for ourselves. And the Xerox was making printers in Southern California at the time, and we were selling them computers. And somebody saw the barcodes on the side of the box. And they called us and said, what's the barcodes? So we explained it to them. They went, you can do that? Uh, Yep, we can do it. Two weeks later, we get Xerox comes in and looks at what we developed and how it works and how it ties back into procurement, ties back into accounting, ties back into customer service. If you have a bad part, we know right away where we bought it from. And they said, son of a gun, we have been trying to do this for years, not only at the here, but back in Rochester. So month goes by, the guys from Rochester come out, take a look and make a long story short. A couple months later, they actually buy the product from us for about, I think it was seven or $800,000. Bought the source code, the product, everything. And they ended up using it to run all their manufacturing lines to track costs and to track bad parts, good parts, and who they bought stuff from. So that was kind of my second foray into software after gaming. But it gave us a differentiator. Again, we were able to get product out at a much lower cost than everybody else because we could subassemble more quickly and more efficiently, and we knew how to buy all the components, and we started doing just-in-time. It's so funny because just-in-time became like this revolution years later in the computer business. Dell was like, oh, my God, just-in-time. Look at how great they are. We've been doing that forever. And so the components would hit on a Monday, they'd be in a box on Monday afternoon and out at the customer on Tuesday. So our turn on cash and efficiencies was unbelievable. And the margin in the business was very low, so you had to be super efficient. And so how big did HW Electronics get and when did you sell it? Sold it in 97, 96, 97, and it got to well over $100 million in revenue. And did you close all the retail stores or did you have like a couple open? No, we closed them all. And then eventually we moved out of the one store and we moved into a warehouse and sales offices. And that was it. You couldn't even come and pick up anything then. Well, what was the hardest part with the HW Electronics? It seemed like at least the initial beginning might have been the hardest. It's just getting out of bankruptcy and going. But was there anything else we could learn? Dealing with the manufacturers, because eventually we ended up, we stopped being gray market and we became authorized by all the manufacturers. They really were terrible to us, and they tried to figure out where we bought goods from during the early 80s and stuff, telling our customers that we were doing something that was unethical which was or illegal, which was not true. It was just a game of cat and mouse. We were really good at it, and we always got our equipment, but it was troublesome, and we kept going to the guys saying, why don't you authorize me? I'm selling the shit out of your stuff. 
but they were arrogant, nasty, difficult. Hewlett-Packard and Compaq and IBM and Apple, the one thing they all had in common was an incredible amount of arrogance. And they just didn't like you because you were that, I guess, the middleman selling them the computers lower than what they wanted you to sell it for? Is that why? I was taking business from their authorized guys who couldn't figure out what to do, like what we did with subassembly. They didn't like me because basically it was, excuse my French, it was an FU kind of operation. And we were sticking it right in their face and beating their other retailers to death. And they hated that. And they figured, how can this guy do this? He must be doing something shifty, shady, this, that, blah, blah, blah. No, we just executed better. Was the main execution like the barcode thing? Like you did the software, like you'd make the software and whatnot to make things more efficient, whereas their retailers weren't doing that? None of them had that. But even before that, we had been doing this by hand. So we had come up with this really incredible system by hand that was very efficient. And we kept everything all under one roof. What the other big chains were doing was trying to manufacture this in one place and then distribute around the country. But they kept making mistakes on their shipments, their orders. They couldn't hit the due dates. They were just terrible at it. And we were excellent. And it came back to, I think, the watchword of any business. Don't do a crappy job. Don't do a medium job. Do a great job. And that was what built HW. So how about personally up to this point in the story? I guess, again, going up till your sell date of HW Electronics, what was the hardest thing personally that you had to deal with? The margins were always slim. The amount of credit we had to carry was terrible. We had a lot of risk in accounts receivable. And eventually somebody stuck us for a ton of money that literally almost wiped out the company and forced us to sell. When you run a low margin business, you have no room for error. No room for error. You have to be perfect all the time. It's tough to be perfect all the time. One mistake and you get whacked and then it's very tough to overcome that. And we did really well at it. But when we had the problem of this close friend of ours went bankrupt and left us holding about $4 million for the debt, as you can imagine, that was a problem with the bankers and everybody else and eventually forced us to sell the company to pay our debts and get a you know nice amount of money out. But we never were able to quite realize the, the true, I think, value of the entity we built. Again, so the final sale date was in 96 and 97. I think maybe we had discussed this might be a good point to pause in your storytelling and maybe we can do a part two if that's okay with you where we can talk about Bel Air Internet and what you did up till Bel Air Internet. Let's save that for, I think, the next thing and maybe go into a couple of these just very simple watchwords of that if you incorporate them, you keep from making mistakes and you make really good decisions. That sounds perfect. So yeah, we'll pause the storytelling for till next time where we'll pick up 96, 97. But in the meantime, like you said, you've had some business words of wisdom that hopefully people could learn from that you wanted to share with us. Yeah, the first one really was, I learned this years ago. And I've incorporated this in every tech company. And I heard this from somebody, and I don't know where, what the tech companies and Marines kind of have in common. It was like, I don't know. He says, you're either quick or you're dead. At the time, I kind of laughed about it. But pretty shortly after that, I saw that quickness, intelligent quickness especially, was essential. You're late, you're gone. So we always built our companies to be quick. Again, kind of going back to that manufacturing and the HW we were talking about, getting those PCs made and getting them out quickly, doing everything quickly, expeditiously, and doing it right. 
So a lot of guys go, oh, I can do it tomorrow. Oh, we got some time to plan. Oh, let's analyze and review again. And one of my other saying is, you cannot wait your way to success. Waiting around don't get you nowhere. And I have sat in more meetings with more sales reps and more employees than you can think of going, well, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do what we need to do. And I would say, just cut out the crap in the middle and do what you need to do. You're never going to get anywhere. Every meeting we come into, you got another thing you got to do before you get to what you're going to do. I need you to do what you need to do. And waiting around here ain't going to make it. It's very hard. You get a lot of bureaucratic companies. They love the wait. Yeah, they love to pass the trash around. They love to avoid the responsibility. Make the decision, be decisive, be quick, or else you get wiped out. Especially when you're the small guy. You don't have a billion dollars in capital behind you that you can just be foolish with. You're not AT&T that can overpay for DirecTV and run it like a toilet for a number of years and run their business terribly just because they have a shitload of money. You're not in that position. So you have to be quick. Another one that I found was you got a good guy and should you move him? And he was really good at this. Maybe he'll be good at that. What I learned over the years is you don't want Picasso painting houses. If you get a guy who's really good in an area and is really effective, keep him there. Let him grow within that area. But you don't want to naturally, oh, he's pretty good at the, this. Let's go take him over to paint houses now. This guy could be the cornerstone of your success and maybe one of your departments, your divisions. And so somebody says, oh, let's promote him. Let's move him out. Let him give, no, pay him more money and keep Picasso doing what he's doing. I can't tell you how many companies I've seen where they've taken people that are very successful and moved them into the wrong job, demoralized the person, they left and they lost a great resource. So it's very simple. You see a guy, oh yeah, I'll just put him over here. You don't know if it's going to work, number one. And if the guy's killing it where he is, pay him more. Let him expand on what he's doing over there, but don't have him go out and paint houses. It's just a terrible mistake. All right. And I guess those are two of them. Did you have any other ones or do we want to save those for the next time? I'll tell you another one. When we started our first companies, I always sat with the troops. We had no offices. When I did, that was very avant-garde, very strange, very weird. Everybody did offices and everybody hid behind doors and all that. And I always felt intrinsically it was a mistake because people would hide behind doors and executives looked very formidable. Nobody wanted to talk to them if they're in their offices. So it didn't seem to make sense to me to have anything that you would do within your physical structure that would cut down on communication or cut down on the feeling of working together. When I first started, I had all these things with open offices and people would come in and go, you don't have an office you work in? No, I work with my guys. I got chided a lot for it. And then I read a book about Hewlett Packard that Hewlett and Packard, their management system was management by wandering around they never sat in their offices. They wandered around the open cubby system the whole day, tinkering, talking to guys, looking at things, and working on things. So they were very famous for this management by walking around. Well, I hadn't actually read about it, but I came to that conclusion at a really early age about this makes sense. And I can't tell you how many companies I've gone into where everybody is hidden away, there's no communication, et cetera, et cetera. And then this became the rage. I would tell anybody that sets up any kind of physical system or reporting system or anything, you don't want walls and doors. You don't want things that work against human nature. When you set up systems, and everybody does this, like how to run the warehouse, how to ship goods, 
how to hire sales reps. They set up systems that conflict with human nature, and then they can't figure out why they do not get the results they want. When you set up systems, you set up payments, you set whatever you do, you have to be cognizant of what human nature is. And that's not what you want people to do. It's what they're going to do. I had a guy tell me a long time ago, people do what you inspect, not what you expect. So, huh, how do you get around this? Well, you set up systems that always go along as much as possible with how humans think and how they like to work, especially certain types of people. So, for example, my last company, BAI, I have a lot of compulsive, maniacal people. We give them that atmosphere to work in and let them loose. We built the culture and the structure of the company so people like that really feel at home. Same thing when you're behind closed doors. I've had partners sit behind closed doors. They never communicate with their people. They lost so much. Their inefficiency in culture, in expressing, what are we trying to do as a company? And when people saw my passion or my obsessiveness, they followed it. When you're hidden behind a door, what do you see? Nothing. So that's one thing I felt was very critical to have open lines of communication, have open physical lines, and don't put in systems that go against what people are going to do. Because people are just going to do what they want to do. So you might as well get aligned interest and set up systems accordingly. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. Even today, I'm still confused sometimes. It's like, luckily, when I was in college, before I came out, I shadowed a lot of business guys because I wanted to see how they worked and I'd see if I even wanted to do the type of work they were doing. But like, if you're an owner of a business and stuff, and even today, I don't know how everyone works. So if they can actually see how you're working, then they have a better idea of like, okay, that's the work ethic I should strive to have, right? They're probably will never have as much work ethic as you if you're the owner and they're an employee, but at least they know what to shoot for and have an idea of it. Because if they don't see it and you're going in your office and it's closed drywall and you can't see in there at all, they have no idea what work ethic looks like, it would seem like. Leaders lead from in front. You want to be an example. My people worked as hard as I did, if not harder. And I had so many people over the years that worked for me said, I've never worked at a company where the owner was out working with us. I've never seen anybody work like you do. I've never seen the transparency you have about what we're trying to do. You don't hide anything. We know exactly who the enemy is and how we're fighting. And it really worked so well. The story that I tie to that is, and some people, hopefully I don't offend anybody and I don't. Everyone likes getting offended these days, so don't worry. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody or it's a trigger event for somebody or whatever. But the Israeli army, their tank corps are led by, they have a scout tank. And then the next tank is either a colonel or a general. Now, if you look at the other, our armed forces, the generals are in the back drinking martinis going, tut, carry forward. Oh, yeah, the enemy's shooting at you. Jolly good. Keep up the good work. Well, the Israelis put their leaders in the front. So they knew their guys would follow behind. You look at Ariel Sharon, who obviously has a mixed bag of a career of how people look at him. But he literally saved the Israelis in the 73 war by leading from in front and leading the tank corps that cut off the Egyptians from behind, and he was in the lead tank. Now, lead tank gets shot at. You die. You're not in the back. Everybody thought he was crazy what he was doing in that particular end run that he did because they were exposed like crazy. And he said, I'm going for it. Let's go. I think when you're running a business and you've got exposure and you've got risk, you got to lead from in front. you got to be visible. You are the general. You are the, the driver of the culture. 
when you have kids and you tell them what to do and then they don't do it, but they do what you do. That's the same thing in business. You tell people what to do, but if they see what you're doing, they'll follow it. It's an example. Makes sense, like being on time, right? You could have had the advantage of being an owner, right? And you work so hard that you want to come in and you don't have to work as hard, you feel like. But again, if that will carry over time, it seems like is basically what you're kind of expressing there, obviously. When you run a company, depending on how you run it, usually after a time, the only thing that gets to the president of the company are really shitty, difficult things. Everything else, that you have great people. They handle everything. So the only stuff you see is like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. And when everybody sees you go through that angst, fire through that, overcome it, fight like a dog against it, and maybe even get a little bit temperamental and upset about it and seeing that this matters. I'm not going to stand for it. We had a very big customer, and I guess it's been so long ago I can say it. It was Disney, and we had some black techs out at Disney. And evidently, one of the managers didn't particularly care for the guy because of racial reasons and the fact that the guy had started having a relationship with the guy's secretary. And he probably shouldn't have, but that was way back in the 80s, and that was not that uncommon. Well, anyway, this guy accused him of malfeasance and made up a bunch of garbage about the guy. So I first heard that. It was like, this guy did this? And it was like, no way could this be. So this spread through the texts. We had a lot of people out of Disney. It's spreading around Disney. It just caught fire. And what are we going to do? And they said, you can't let this guy back out here again. Under no circumstances. Sends me a, a FedEx with a envelope with, you're not going to do this. And this guy did all this stuff. The next day, I pulled all my texts from Disney. And I said, I talked to the guy. I know what really happened. I won't let my people be exposed to this kind of work atmosphere. This is a non-starter. This is on every level wrong. I didn't call him a racist bastard. But on every level, this is wrong. This is unprofessional. This is not fit the dizzy thing. And I will not expose my employees to any type of harassment like this. They fired the guy. They fired the guy. But my techs, when I did that, because they figured I'd just roll over, refused to accept that kind of bullshit behavior. And when we did that, remember, that was the 80s. Nobody did that kind of stuff. People were just shocked that I would stand up to corporate America like that. But we wrote a very strong response about it. And basically, they interviewed the girl and she told the truth. And our guy went out there and talked to him and the guy lied. So they fired him and they wrote us a letter of apology. And it locked into our relationship even stronger into Disney. So I risked what could have been the whole relationship which was they were our largest customer, just because you had to do the right thing. And you stood up as president out there, very visible. So my guys knew I had their back no matter what. So when I asked them to do something or we needed some help, they were there for us. The last one that I would do, and this is one that I think is very hard to do, and everybody will argue with me about that, always be the chooser, not the beggar. When you're in business, be the chooser, not the beggar. You have to be the guy that can say no. I'm not doing it. Everybody thinks the guy that says yes has the power. Uh-uh. It's the guy that says no and walks away. I have incorporated this so many times on so many situations where people have told me, if you don't do this, I'm never giving you the, the business or you've got to do this or else. But it was suicide. It went against our ethics or it went against our model, it went against our integrity. And we always came back and said, no, you're a startup. And somebody comes to you and says, if you sell me a bunch of your product or licenses or whatever, basically at a huge loss, because I'm going to build your brand reputation. 
the fact that Apple bought your shit is going to make you. And down the road, I'll buy more of it from you. The guy's sitting out there going, oh, my God, Apple's going to buy my stuff. My name is Nade, and I'm going to lose a bunch of money. But, you know, somehow that'll change. Their reputation is going to drag mine up and blah, 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 blah. Guess what? 99 times out of 100, you go broke doing that. You got to go to the guys at Apple and say, I love you for it. But if I'm broke and out of business, that it doesn't do me any good that I sold you anything. So I appreciate it. I love your support. But I got to say no to your offer. And here's what I can do to survive. When you do that, you go to a salesman, you tell him you're going to do this. The sales rep almost has a seizure and kills himself on the spot. You can't tell the customer that. You've got to do whatever. No, you've got to be able to say no. And if you run a business that you can't do that, you're going to get buffeted by everybody out there and they're going to take advantage of you. I've had so many properties at BAI, so many companies. Well, if, you, if I do this one building, I'll give you 10 more in the future. No. You don't get them. The guy gets fired. Something changes. It's, I forget, Popeye used to have that thing with Brutus about if I give you a hamburger today for two hamburgers tomorrow. And obviously Brutus never did it. And it was a life lesson about don't take things on the come like that. It's too easy to be lied to. People will, and again, excuse the expression, but they will grin fuck you and lie to your face and promise you and you go chase it. Because you believe it over the common sense of this doesn't make sense for us. So you got to say no. And we ran Bel Air Internet, and I'll get into this later on. We passed on so many deals, tons of them. I can't tell you how many of them went wrong after we passed them. How many of the guys went broke? How many guys that did the deal lost their business? Because no bad deal ever gets good. That's one of my other ones. And, And I will end with that one. It never, ever gets good. You think it will. You don't say no, you take the bad deal, it just eats away at you and eats away at you. And you do not want to be in that situation. And it's so easy. Human nature, like, if I just do this one thing, it'll take me over the top. If I just do this, yeah, maybe it doesn't make much sense. But right now, like, we'll figure it out later. No bad deal gets good. And nothing that ever starts wrong seems to ever get right. That comes from... Don't be the beggar, be the chooser, so you can avoid that. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing up to this part in your story, Terry. I look forward to catching up with part two. But before we do, if anyone wanted to say thank you or reach out to you and say thanks for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you? Well, they can always find me on LinkedIn. But my Gmail account is terrylcusid at gmail.com. And yeah, again, thanks for coming on. And we look forward to part two. Obviously, a long story here. I hope that you're okay with what I, I mean, my wife thinks I'm very long-winded and of course everything sounds fantastic to me because <laughs> I'm saying it. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder and I always think that my stories are so incredible, but I think you're a good judge because you see it and you hear it out there all the time. So I think that you're a much better position than me to, to take a look at it. So if something you don't like, speak up or forevermore hold your peace. Trust me, I'm not scared to say no either. I'm glad you brought that up because I can actually even relate to that even when I started this podcast. Some people say, I don't want to do a pre-interview. You're basically lucky to have me. And I had told all those people, no, you're not coming on. Like you said, you have to have the balls to say no. There's some like guys who thought they were like hot shit. And I'm like, no, I don't want you on. And then it pisses them off even more, to be honest. But I'm like, you're not going to take advantage of my process. I have a process for a reason and you got to stick to it. I hate those hot shit people when <laughs> AT&T buys DirecTV. 
So I'm on the dealer advisory board for DirecTV. I'm one of their top dealers in the country. We've been awarded. I'm very well perceived, but not well liked within DirecTV because I call it like I see it publicly and privately. So, and I just don't hold back. And so that what they tell me is you're always right, but we hate the way you deliver it. And I tell them the only reason I delivered that way is you guys never fucking listen. <laughs> so the merger takes place and John Stanky, who is now going to be the head of AT&T, he's the mastermind of this merger. Now, behind the merger, there is a thought AT&T, they're buying a melting ice cube, and they shouldn't do it. But he ramrodded this thing through. So Stanky comes in with a cadre of suits into the meeting after the sale's been closed with the top dealers for hotels and residential and apartments, kind of like us. There's like 20 of us in the room. And most of them are all small business guys literally peeing in their pants when Stanky comes in. So he comes in, sits down with the look that he has eaten sauerkraut for the last five days in his face, proceeds to lecture us about how lucky we are that this merger took place and that their model is that they're going to combine cell phones with TV and it's going to be this big synergistic mosh pit of customers buying, buying. Well, we knew there was no synergy between cell phone buying and direct TV. There just isn't. And even internet at your house, there was no synergy between internet at your house and internet on your phone. So he goes on and on, and then they ask for questions. And of course, everybody's looking at me like, don't you say a word. All the DirecTV senior executives, they immediately stare at me. So of course, I wave my hand and I tell them there's no synergy. This is a critical mistake in judgment. If this is the basis of your investment, it's a mistake and it won't work. And here's why. And I go on for about two minutes of the whys to which the literally the guys in the back room are waving their hands saying, God, please stop. So I stop and Stanky just rips me a new asshole. Our field surveys, the best people in the world, the analysts have looked at this. What makes you think that you know better? Of course, they would figure I'm just going to sit there quiet. And I said, because I'm next to the customer and I look at them all the time and I talk to them all the time and I know who they are. And you guys don't do that. Oh, my God. Bedlam breaks out in the room. One of the DTV execs comes over and he said, Terry, you might have to leave. And it's like, for what? What did I do? Well, I literally got escorted out. Hey, guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. And we came up with 18 different little things we did like this repurposing of equipment. 18 things we had discovered or built into our model over the years. And any one of those things by themselves was helpful, nice, important. But when you took them all and put them together, oh my goodness, we got a huge strategic advantage over the competition. When you're having problems, doing nothing is the biggest enemy. Getting frozen with fear and doing nothing to fix it, and then that whole thing about insanity, you keep doing the same crap over and over again, thinking it's going to get fixed. And they do it again. It's that thing I talked to you about before. They're trying to protect their interests. They're doing what's best for themselves. What really worked well for us is, this is something that's really interesting to you. He says, what you've developed is what I call simple elegance. And when you're an engineer, simple elegance is the best way to do things. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member right now, right now, right now, right now.